0: We shall now turn to the Word of God, to the Psalm 91. We come this evening to Psalm 91, and you will see that this psalm does not have a title in the uh, Greek Septuagint It does have, and according to the Subtuagent, David is the author, but we don't have any indication as to who the author is here in our version. It is nevertheless a psalm that we get some indication as to who it does apply when we go to the New Testament and we have that, uh, or at least words from this psalm, we have them quoted by none less than the devil himself. When we go to Matthew's Gospel in the chapter 4 and we find that the Holy Spirit after Christ's baptism leads him into the wilderness to be tempted and in the course of the temptation of the Saviour Satan quotes the scriptures to him And he quotes from this psalm in Matthew 4. We read in uh, verse 6, He that is Satan saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time Thou diest thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. But when we go back to Psalm 91, we see indeed that this is a direct quotation. Satan is able to quote the word of God. As I've often said, Satan knows the scriptures better than many professing Christians. And when he's speaking to the Savior, he's able to interpret the scriptures. Satan would make one of the best preachers anywhere to be found. He has such an ability because of his knowledge of the scriptures, the word of God. And when he's addressing the Savior, uh, you'll see how he puts it. It is written, he shall give us angels charge concerning thee. And he's speaking directly to the Savior. And he's applying the scriptures to the Savior. He understands that these words in Psalm 91 are applicable to the Savior whom he was endeavoring to tempt into sin. It is to be noted before we pass from that uh, temptation that the serpent Satan was actually seeking to tempt the Son of God, the very Word made flesh, tempt him into sin. And how was he doing it? He was using the very scriptures to do it. He has a most subtle way of using the scriptures to tempt people into disobedience and into rebellion against God. And that's something that we seem to have lost sight of in this generation. That was one of the tactics of Satan. Paul said, we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. But perhaps in this generation we have become ignorant of Satan's devices and how often people will argue in defense of behavior or conduct or whatever and they will say, like Satan, it is written. He was able to say it's written. But he was seeking to uh, to tempt the Savior into disobedience and how many think well just so long as i can say it's written everything's fine the devil can come and say it is written and interpret what is written and apply what is written in a very erroneous and in a very dangerous way and that is one of the things we should be learning when we observe that he tempted the very Savior this way and by this method. But coming back then to Psalm 91, and keeping this in mind, because of the fact it doesn't have a title here, it's an anonymous uh, psalm, we might say, uh, then we can, because we know it was applied to the Savior, we can take it as a psalm of his. Uh, We... Uh, are able I believe Because of some of the things Are written in it To see that we're looking beyond Any ordinary man Or any ordinary individual But the close relationship And the union between Christ And his people means That if this psalm applies to him It applies to his people as well And so we shall Look at it then, considering what I believe it's about, the believer's safety in a world of trouble. The, sa- the believer's safety in a world of trouble, because you can see here in this psalm, uh, what we read in verse 14 just now because he has set his love upon me therefore will I deliver him and will set him on high because he hath known my name he shall call on me and I will answer him I will be with him in trouble I will be with him in trouble, We might expect that it would be much more encouraging if we would read, I will deliver him from trouble. I will rescue him from trouble. No, I will be with him in trouble. And you see, sometimes we have a tendency to think things should be different And if the Lord really cares for us, well, he will keep us away from trouble. He will prevent us from falling into trouble. He will deliver us. No, the psalmist writing here is telling us that God will be with his people. He will not, oftentimes, he will not prevent the trouble. He may even order it. He will overrule it, but he will be with his people in their trouble. Uh, the prophet Isaiah reminds us, uh, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. Uh, the uh, Savior uh, passed through the waters, deep, deep waters. He had his father's presence with him. The children of Israel, they passed through the Red Sea. It was opened up for them, and they were able to pass safely through. The Lord goes with his people. He doesn't guide them in the way in which there's no problems, there's no difficulties, there's no obstacles. No, this is what we have in this psalm. I will be with him in trouble. And sometimes we think when trouble comes along, we're on our own. We think when trouble comes along, that's because God has abandoned us. When trouble comes along, that's an evidence of God's disfavor. God does send trouble and order trouble to test the faith of his people to try them whether they will actually trust him or not, whether they can depend upon him, whether they believe he is present with them. But then this safety, even in trouble, is because of God's presence and because of the relationship between the believer and his God. And that takes us back up again to the beginning of the psalm. And there we read of the source of the believer's safety. Note the source. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. The secret place Of the most high That means none can be higher This is the source of the believer's safety None can go higher No trouble can arise higher Than his wisdom, his knowledge His ordering, his ruling, his overruling You'll see in verse 9 Again, because thou hast made the Lord Which is my refuge Even the most high Thy habitation The Psalmist is talking about God And there are many titles That are given to God Right throughout the whole scriptures But this is one of them And it is used in this context The most high And when the believer is in trouble, they think. They're sinking sometimes. They think they're ready to perish. But their refuge is there in the Most High. And that's what they need to keep their eye upon by faith. There is someone higher than my problems. There is someone higher than my trouble. There is someone higher than my difficulties. There is someone higher than myself. And this is what the psalmist is saying. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In him will I trust. In him will I trust. Why? Because he is the almighty. What kind of a vision do we have sometimes of God? How do we view him? What do we think of him? Whatever we're faced with in daily life and we think, well, it's Too high for me, the obstacle is too great for me to overcome or to deal with or to manage. How do we view God? Do we honestly see him and understand him to be the most high? That when we go to him, we can go no higher. And when we go to him, he is always the almighty. The Most High God, the Almighty is referred to here, and therefore there's no power greater than His. When you combine the Most High and the Almighty, what a combination. Is there any problem we can't take to Him? Is there any problem He can't resolve? Is there any difficulty He can't overcome? When you and I lack wisdom, he has it all. When we don't know what way to turn, he is in complete control because he is the Most High and he is the Almighty. But then, what is the secret of this safety? He that dwelleth in the secret place of the most High, and therefore this secret place of which the psalmist is speaking belongs to the most high. It is a secret place with the most high. it is a secret place with the Almighty. Now you and I know perfectly well that even the children sometimes they will have secret places and their little games that they play. Perhaps it's different today to what it was when I was young, but oftentimes if you lived in the country and there were woods near, uh, children would have hiding places, secret places that they might go uh, to play in or stay in for a while. And they kept them secret. And they were kind of special. And that's what here the psalmist is talking about. There is a special place. A special place reserved by the Most High, by the Almighty, to which His afflicted people are able to escape. It's the secret place of the Most High. And it's in that secret place they meet with him. And it is in that secret place that they are protected and they are preserved. Now, in the Old Testament, in the times of the uh, ceremonial law, when the sacrifices were offered to God and the tabernacle existed and the Holy of Holies... Existed and on the Day of Atonement, the High Priest went into that Holy of Holies, into the secret place of the Most High. The children of Israel were never allowed to go in there. It was the secret place. And the secret place was the most holy place. There wasn't a spot in the whole camp of Israel. So holy and to be so revered as the secret place where God dwelt. And what the psalmist is talking about here is a place most holy, a place where God himself dwells, the secret place of the Most High. belongs to him. We cannot enter it The children of Israel couldn't enter that secret place. The high priest could. Once a year he had to take blood and incense in order that he would not be killed. But it was the place where God dwelt. And the high priest was specially privileged to represent the people going in there. And here we're told that into the Holy of Holies, as it were, the secret place of the Most High. In there, there's a refuge for the afflicted people of God. While the children of Israel could not go into that Holy of Holies, their refuge was still in there. When the high priest took the blood and sprinkled it there, That was guaranteeing the safety of the children of Israel. They wouldn't be consumed in the anger of God because of their sin. That blood, that was a a typical blood, was typifying the atonement that was made. The secret place was the place where atonement was made. And here we have the secret place of the Most High referred to where the believer finds safety and finds refuge. And it is because the blood has been sprinkled there. The blood of atonement is that which makes it holy. But then, when we come to the New Testament, when we come to the Savior teaching us, about prayer, and we're to enter into her closet and shut the door, and your father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. And the secret place for the child of God is the place where they meet with God, where they're able to come nigh to God, where they're able to unburden themselves to God, where he sees them in secret alone with himself. And this is the place of refuge for the people of God. Their safety is here, but it is in the secret place. And you see, this is why, again and again, the ungodly, they cannot understand where the people of God sometimes draw their strength from. They can't understand why it is that they are buoyant, why it is they're at peace, why it is they have joy when they're afflicted, when they're tried, when they're troubled. As here, the psalmist says, I will be with them in trouble And the child of God can't escape trouble and yet they seem to be able to rise above it. They're able to rejoice in the midst of it. They're able to be glad in the Lord in spite of it. And why is it? It is because there is a secret place unknown to the ungodly. They have no entrance into this place. It is reserved for the people of God. And the ungodly are very often mystified. How is it that they have all that trouble and all those burdens to carry and yet they still rejoice in the Lord? They are afflicted just like our other people are, even more so sometimes. And there was godly job and what was he saying though he slay me though he slay me yet will I trust him now you can imagine who would understand that who would understand the mentality who would understand the mind that would think that way even if God slays me, I will still trust him because I will know, I will be confident he's still doing the right thing. He's still bringing glory to his name by such severe dealings. This is the psalmist speaking about the secret place where he finds refuge, where he finds peace, where he finds tranquility even in the midst of trouble. But what is the extent of this safety? You can see in the psalm that the troubles that afflict the just are many, and they come day and night. In verse 5, The psalmist says, Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. And uh, sometimes that is how the people of God find it. They're looking for relief. And they think at the end of a troublesome day, how nice to be able to lie down and rest and leave the troubles behind and put them out of mind. And then it doesn't happen. And they think to themselves, is there no relief whatever? I seem to be afflicted day and night. There's no relief. And sometimes that is true. I will be with them in trouble. Whether it comes in the night or whether it comes in the day, however indefinite a period it lasts, I will be with him. And in the trouble then, isn't there this? As we often say, behind every cloud there is a silver lining. And uh, you ask a true child of God, what would you rather have? Would you rather have a smooth uh, day or night, a lifestyle free of trouble, free of any trials, free of any burdens, that enjoyable, peaceable, pleasant, pleasurable life where everything's prospering? Which would you rather have? Would you rather have that? With the absence of God's presence? Or would you accept the trouble and trial with his presence? What would you prefer? And inevitably a true child of grace is going to say they will gladly accept as Paul did. The troubles and trials. If he had sufficient grace afforded to him. And this is something that the child of God is privileged to enjoy. And then when they look back sometimes, they would be thinking to themselves, well, I never looked for that trouble. I never expected it. I wasn't wanting it. I certainly wasn't praying for it. But it came, and when I look back, I know I had the Lord's presence in the midst of it. And therefore I cannot object. And I cannot complain. Because his presence was sweet. And his presence was my joy and my delight. And that's how we learn to deal with the troubles and trials in this world of trouble from which there is no escape. And uh, the psalmist here is able to speak of the refuge, the secret place that is available day or night, every moment. There is access to it, access to God at any time, day or night. And sometimes the Lord's people find themselves in the very night watches, opening up their hearts to the Lord because they know this. He's available at any time, at any hour. And you see, <coughs> you see what also the psalmist says about this. He says in verse uh, 4, well, we can read from verse 3, Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noise and pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou trust his truth shall be thy shield and buckler under his wings shalt thou trust and uh, here you have a picture of the protection that the Lord gives to his people from a very simple uh, natural uh, illustration I remember when I was a young lad on the farm, I used to have uh, what, I don't know what they call them here in Australia, but we called them bantams, and they were little, small, fowl. Uh, They weren't the size, only half the size of an ordinary hen. But although they were so small, when they would have chicks, And there was any danger, whatever, if a dog came anywhere near any danger, they would immediately call those little chicks behind themselves. And they would call them behind and then they would puff out their feathers and they would put out their wings and they would face up, those tiny little bantams up to the largest dog. They were not afraid of them. They would... Do that in order to protect the little chicks. And that's, you see, what the psalmist is saying here about God. He will face any opposition, any enemy uh, that his people are confronted with. And just as the mother hen went first, the little chicks didn't face uh, whatever it was, a dog or whatever else. It was the little chicks didn't. The mother went first. And that's what the psalmist is talking about. God goes first. He goes ahead. And you and I can very easily forget and think, well, here I am all on my own, having to face up to these trials, having to try and manage these troubles, all on my own. No one knows about them. I cannot even share them with even the members of my family or uh, my fellow believers. I just have to cope with them somehow in my own. When we understand the relationship between ourselves and the Lord, then we know this. We never face anything in a own. Never. He goes first. He meets it. And he deals with it if we trust him. He goes with us even if we must pass through trouble, even if it's the valley of the shadow of death. What did the psalmist say? I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thou art with me. That's why I need fear no evil. But then in verse uh, uh, 5 and 6, we read this. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the uh, dark the arrow that flieth uh, by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, and so on. And the reason for this is because in verse eleven, he shall give his angels charge over thee, and this is what the, the devil, this is what Satan. Brought to the attention of the Savior. He will give his angels charge. He commits his people to the charge, the protection of the angelic hosts. When we go over to the epistle to the Hebrews, we're told uh, that there the angels have this particular task or charge uh, verse 14 of Hebrews 1 well, we might read from verse 13 but to which of the angels said he at any time sit in my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool are they not all ministering spirits have you ever wondered to yourself what do the angels actually do how do they put their time in? And we be thinking, well, probably they sing around the throne of God. They praise their maker and they cry, holy, holy, holy. Well, this is what the word says. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? We might not be aware of it, but how privileged the people of God are that the angelic hosts are actually active in their behalf. They are charged with keeping the feet of the saints, charged with supporting them, charged with comforting and encouraging them in the very temptation of which we've been speaking there and the Savior's experience in the fourth chapter. And it's something that we should all keep in mind regarding each of the people of God. We think of temptation. And we think, we pray, lead us not into temptation and so on. Well, little wonder, because when you look at the Savior, in Matthew 4, he was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Uh, What a temptation. But what happens when it's over? We read in verse 11 of Matthew 4, Then the devil leaveth him and... Behold, after this temptation, it would seem it took so much out of the Savior that angels came and ministered unto him. The Savior was so tempted, and that temptation was so severe, and that temptation was so real, In his experience, it was as though it was exhausting. It was as though it tried every part of his holy being. And angels came and ministered unto him. And you sometimes might think, well, there's a brother, there's a sister. They've got temptations, and they've got trials, and the devil's harassing them. And we think, well, we'll just pray for them. And sometimes we don't realize that when the devil is tempting, he's merciless. He goeth about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may want. Devour. Devour like a lion devouring its prey. And when he tempts, his temptation can be so severe There's unseen help sent from heaven to strengthen and to support the afflicted child of God. When the Savior then was was in the Garden of Gethsemane, how amazing when he was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And in that darkness and loneliness of that night as he cried in agony, an angel then came and strengthened him. And what a privilege it is that the children of God sometimes might have even a little, a little share in that experience to know the heavenly strengthening that is reserved for them. The angelic hosts are responsible to strengthen and to encourage and to uphold and to succor and to sustain the people of God. Then we have in the psalm the choice of this safety. What does the psalmist say in verse 2? I will say of the Lord he is My refuge and my fortress, my God, in him will I trust. There's a lot of people and they can say, well, he is God. He is a fortress, a refuge. He's my neighbor's God. He's someone else's God. But to be able to say in the exercise of faith he is my refuge. He is my fortress. He is my God. In him will I trust. There's something very personal about it. We cannot commend God as a refuge to anyone else unless we know him personally to be our own refuge. We cannot commend uh, God is a fortress to anyone else unless we have some experience of God being our own fortress we've fled to him we've discovered him to be a refuge and uh, so on and here is the samist. and what kind of a refuge is it is it just something merely to escape from trouble into no you see when we go down to Verse 14, because he has set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high because he hath known my name. And I believe there we have most definitely a sight of the Savior. His love for his father and for the honor of his father, as well as his love for his people, but it was his love for For his father in particular, that enabled him to be so obedient even unto death. But look at what we read. Because he has set his love upon me. Because he has set his love upon me, I will deliver him. Because he loves me more than life itself. He loves me more than self. He loves me more than comfort. He loves me more than relief. He loves me more than pleasure. That's why I will deliver him. Because as Job was tried severely, and Satan was accusing Job of just being a hypocrite, he was only serving God because of the way God blessed him. And God then allowed Satan to try him. And uh, Satan was saying, if you afflict him, he'll curse you. And his very wife was saying in the midst of troubles, curse God and die, Job. Just get it over with. But what did Job say? The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away what he gave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We can say, blessed be the name of the Lord when he's giving. It's very easy to do that. Do we say, blessed be the name of the Lord when he takes away? When he denies us? When he withholds from us? Do we say, blessed be the name of the Lord? If he impoverishes us, do we say, blessed be the name of the Lord? Or do we find it hard to say blessed be the name of the Lord unless he really gives us what we want and everything's prosperous? It's easy then to say blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord's good. The Lord looks after me. He provides for me. He gives everything to me that I need or I want. But Job had that in him. That he loved God more than material things. He loved God even more than his beasts, the signs of his prosperity. He even loved more, loved God more than his family, and he was devoted to them. And Job was able to say by faith and with a lot of grace, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gave, and He hath taken away, and I am satisfied, and I am at peace. This is what we have here in this Psalm, the attitude of the true believer. His attitude to God or her attitude to God, they don't escape from trouble, they don't escape from affliction, but they are confident In the Lord ordering everything well. And they are confident. That they have a secret place. Where they can be alone with God. Yes even in the troubles. They have that secret place. Of communion. And fellowship with God. And there they find peace. There the soul rests. And you will see. In verse 14, Because he has set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high, because he hath known my name. And there, undoubtedly, you have, I believe, the exaltation of the Redeemer and Satan when he quotes from this psalm. It isn't because that was the only verse he knew. He knew the psalm. And he knew what God would do. He knew what God had promised. He knew that the Christ of God is to be exalted and he's to be elevated and high. And so his temptation is to bring him low and to destroy the prospects of his exaltation. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him. And honor him. I will bring him through the trouble. I will bring him through the trouble of Golgotha. I will bring him through the troubles. When the wrath of the Almighty falls upon him in its fullness. I will be with him. I will bring him through. And I will honor him. And it is and uh, by the Spirit of God that he offered up himself. And though he had to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me in such great darkness? Nevertheless he was brought through and he was honored. In the end when he was his humiliation, his time of humiliation was ended and he was exalted and high. And with long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. There's so many things in this psalm that we could dwell upon. But it is a great encouraging psalm. And there are so many things in it to encourage the child of God. But when we see how that this psalm is applied to the Savior... What a wonderful thing it is to share with him in his experience. Though ours is different and his is much greater, what a blessing it is to know something of what he experienced. And uh, uh, we may dwell even in this dark day in the secret place of the Most High and enjoy fellowship and communion with him. But we shall leave it there. May the Lord bless his word.